how would you spend that last week of your life? Well, I asked the staff that this past week. And uh, somebody on staff responded. They said I would grab my loved ones and go to Italy where I was born. That's kind of cool. I didn't know she was born in Italy. Anybody else in the room born in Italy? Okay. A couple of you. All right. Grab the people I love the most and pour into my children. These guys or these girls? These are women. Okay. Gather my family, visit each of the places I've loved visiting in my life, and end up in the Holy Land. I thought that was a great idea. The Holy Land? It was a good idea. I don't know what happened, but it's a good idea. Anyway, that's kind of like the home court advantage. Um, all right, now, is this, a, is this a lady or is this a guy? So you tell me this. Fly an F-22 fighter plane, <laughs> go hang gliding, skydiving, maybe on the last day, Go to the salt flats, go speed car racing, get shot out of the cannon, and go spear fishing. Is that a guy or is that a guy? Gal, that's a dude. You're right. Somebody else said, I would go back to Paris. How many of you have been to Paris? Did you like Paris? Okay. Um, somebody said, I would visit the seven wonders of the world. I thought that was a really good idea. One for each day. That'd be a pretty cool adventure, wouldn't it? Um, someone else said, I would come to work and not change a thing. I think they were trying to suck up. I really do. I, nobody would do that, right? You had seven days. You quit. You wouldn't go to work. All right. Um, one person said I would book a helicopter so I could go to the, all my places quickly. I thought that was a good idea. Take family and friends to experience it with me, throw a private concert, visit art museums, and hire a photographer to capture all these major events. I thought that was a great idea. What would you do? if you knew that you had basically one week to live? Well, we're going to study the last week of Jesus' life, and it's a fascinating week. And so we're going to start with Sunday today, and then next week we'll do Monday, and then we'll spend about three weeks on Tuesday. Tuesday was a super day. We call it Super Tuesday. A lot of events occurred on that last Tuesday. The Bible doesn't record anything on Wednesday. I don't know. Maybe he went fishing. I don't know where he went. But the Bible records nothing on Wednesday, several events on Thursday, and of course on Friday he was on the cross. So that's where we're headed until April the 5th, which is Easter, okay? All right. On that Sunday morning before Passover, uh, of the last Passover, Jesus' life, there are two armies that are both approaching the city of Jerusalem. One army comes from the west, one army comes from the east. I want you to learn this today. This will significantly change the way you look at Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, as we call it, from, for the rest of your life. From the west, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate leaves a place called Caesarea Maritime, and he travels 70 miles up the coastline along the Mediterranean. He's got about four or 500 Roman soldiers with him. Now, this is the Pontius Pilate that you've read about. Pontius Pilate, who had Jesus scourged. Pontius Pilate, who sentenced Jesus to death. This is the Pontius Pilate that washed his hands in front of everybody and said, I find no fault in him. This is the guy whose wife said, I had a really bad dream. You remember the dream? And she said, have nothing to do with him. I have suffered greatly. So this is the Roman governor. And as governor, you were responsible for the taxes, you were an accountant, you were responsible for the army, and you were, you were a judge. So this Pontius Pilate had several different roles as the Roman governor. Now, the Jewish people hated Pontius Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate did two things that just absolutely infuriated the Jewish people. Number one, he builds this really cool aqueduct, and I'm going to show you pictures in just a minute. He builds this really great aqueduct that brings in fresh water, but he took money out of the temple treasury. It'd be like one of our elders this morning when the money bags passed around, reaching in, grabbing some, you know, some money and going home with it and building a sprinkler system for themselves at home. Nothing wrong with having a sprinkler system at home, but it's wrong to take church money. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, takes Jewish funds out of the Jewish temple to build his aqueduct. They ticked them off greatly. Second of all, this same guy, Pontius Pilate, he takes shields with the images of Caesar on them, and he hangs them on the walls inside the temple proper. Now, the Jewish people are monotheistic. The Romans are polytheistic. And Pontius Pilate did this on purpose just to tick them off. And it did. These were fighting actions. In fact, Caesar Augustus himself had to get involved to tell Pontius Pilate, take the shields off the wall, you idiot. You're going to cause a revolt. And so here's Pontius Pilate. I don't want to pull a Brian Williams, but about four or 500 soldiers, okay, so we got, we got at least four or 500 soldiers coming up the coastline, uh, about 70 miles up the Mediterranean, and they will come inside to, to Caesarea Maritime. And you've got another army, though, coming from the east. But first of all, I want to show you some pictures of Caesarea Maritime. Here's what it looks like. <clears throat> That's an overview. <clears throat> you see uh, right there is a theater. You'll see some flat places to your left, right before the water up there. That's where actually the movie Ben-Hur was filmed. They did the chariot races around that particular flat. You see the water over there. This is really cool. They figured out how to take volcanic ash and make underground concrete. Now think about this. This is a long time ago. They take 44 ships, load 44 ships with over 400 tons of volcanic ash, and they create breakwaters out there in the water so that the ships could get in safely. This is unheard of. Really cool. All right, here's the next picture. This is the aqueduct itself. This is what uh, the, the governor took, Pontius Pilate, took money out of, the, out of the Jewish temple funds to build this. Great idea. He just shouldn't, he should have built it with his own money, right? Here's picture number three, kind of an overview of the whole place. And again, if you look to the right, Right before the water, you see all that little flat area? That's where, again, the movie Ben-Hur was filmed. Chariot races were done there. Chariot fights, all kind of things took place there. Here's the last picture. There's this huge temple. There's this huge theater, I mean theater, right there in Caesarea Maritime. And we're actually sitting there in a concert. Don Moen's doing a Christian concert. Everybody's clapping and cheering and worshiping God. I keep looking at the breakwaters out there, thinking about the 44 ships and the 400 tons of concrete. So I wasn't really worshiping God. I was overwhelmed with the architectural and design of everything taking place. All right, so here's the point. 70 miles Caesarea Maritime, that's where basically the Romans set up their headquarters. It was beautiful. It was the beach. It was the Mediterranean. He goes up 70 miles, and he comes into the city. On the east side from the Mount of Olives, there's one guy on a donkey. Here's four or 500 Roman soldiers on stallions. Here's a guy on a donkey. It's Jesus. And you think about the difference as as. The Roman governor's coming into the city. Everybody's booing him. As Jesus comes into the city, they begin to cut down palm branches. 
They begin to cheer. They're all upset about the Romans coming in, but they're excited with messianic expectations because Jesus of Nazareth is coming into the city. It's an amazing feat. And so I want you to understand this today, how these two different armies approached Jerusalem. And that's going to be our key word for this morning, approach. Because everybody has an approach. Everybody in the room has an approach with life, with love, with marriage, with money, with family, with conflict, with friends, with work. Everybody in the room has an approach. So here's the question as we kind of get started today. What's your approach? What is your approach to life? What's your approach to money? What's your approach to generosity? What's your approach to hoarding? What's your approach in life? So Matthew chapter 21, here's the story. It's told in all four Gospels, which means it's really, really important, okay? And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this story. But what's interesting is you learn something a little bit different from each one of these Gospel writers. Here's Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem. So again, same time on that Sunday morning. Sabbath is over. Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. The Roman governor would always come on that Sunday morning into the city. He would come there during a major Jewish festival. There were seven major Jewish festivals, but there were three really, really big ones. And he would always come into the city because he wanted to squelch any potential revolts. That's why they all come into the city. But on the other side, from the east, from the Mount of Olives, a half a mile away, comes Jesus and his disciples. So as they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Verse 2. Well, actually, we're going to go to verse 20 of Matthew. See, Jesus said this was going to happen. Jesus predicted this. Listen to what he said in chapter 20. He said, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took 12 aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, why would you go up to Jerusalem when you're coming from the east? Because it's always, it's a higher sea level. So you always go up to Jerusalem, no matter whether you're the south, the north, or the west. You always go up. He took the 12, we're going up to Jerusalem, and here's what he says to them. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day... He will be raised to life. They don't quite understand what's going on. Back to Matthew 21. Now look at verse 2. We'll continue the story. Jesus said, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. This is the only gospel that mentions the donkey and the colt. They all mention two, two disciples to go find them. This is the only one that says there's going to be like a mama and there's going to be like a baby. This is very interesting. Now, why would that happen? Because the mother donkey would bring peace to the other donkey that had never been ridden. And that's the one that Jesus would ride in Jerusalem on. You will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. Look at verse 3. If anyone says to you that the Lord needs them, he will send them right away. I think that's cool. If you need anything, just, you know, you need a new car, just go break into somebody's car in a parking lot, and they ask you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it. I think it's a great idea. I don't know if it'll work for you or not, but I think it's a great idea. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. 500 years before this event takes place. 
A guy named Zechariah said it's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. Yep, you got Pontius Pilate, four or five hundred soldiers on stallions coming from the west. But this is how the Messiah is going to come into the city. Look at this. 500 years before this, Zechariah said, Say to daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. He's not coming in on a stallion. He's coming in on a donkey as a symbol of peace. And he will bring peace and prosperity. Look at verse 6. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Okay, they do it. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now again, guys, keep this in mind. From the West, we don't want you Romans. We don't want you Pontius Pilate. From the East, the people begin to cut off palm branches, taking off their jackets, laying them on the ground. We can't wait for Jesus to come into the city. They spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. Verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. That's what Hosanna means. Save us. It means, really means save us now. Save us now, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And verse 10 says this. When Jesus entered, the Jerusalem, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. See, that's why Pontius Pilate always came into the city. Because he wants to keep the city calm. They don't want it all stirred up. But when Jesus came, man, there was always some action. When some of your family members come, do they stir it up? Anybody in your family, when they walk in the room, it just sucks all the oxygen right out of the room? Okay? Well, this is happening. Jerusalem, it's on, baby. It's on, and here comes Jesus. Look at verse 11. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All the other kings, there were 43 in Israel and Judah, all the other dictators took lives to preserve their own. This will be a king who will give his life so that other people might be able to approach God. And just think about the difference. And we're familiar with this. We understand dictators throughout history. Even right now, we've got Assad in Syria, and he's killed tens of thousands of his own people. We've got the Castros in Cuba, whether it's Fidel, whether it's Raul, doesn't really matter. They are all in it for themselves. And all those dictators, it's me, 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 me. It's self-preservation. It's self-promotion. We look throughout history. There's never been a dictator who's died for for his country. There's never been a dictator who's even died for his family. Every dictator takes the lives of his family members so that he can stay in power. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Mussolini, um, Saddam Hussein. We can remember Saddam Hussein in the room, right? Killed his brothers, killed his uncles. He killed a lot of people. But here's Jesus. He's going to lay down his life for you and for me. And so what's his approach? It's very different than the approach of Pontius Pilate. 
So I want to talk about that for just a couple minutes. And I want you to think about your approach. Because everybody in the room, we all have an approach. It's about life, about love, about money, about work, about people, about friends. Whatever subject you can... Everybody in the room has an approach. So what's the approach of the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, the kingdom of God, it's not about power, but there's a lot of power in the kingdom of God. It's not about power, but Jesus retained his power. Yes, he was God in the flesh, but he was still very, very, very powerful, wasn't he? I mean, he raised Lazarus from the dead. That takes a lot of power. He slipped through the crowd one time when they were, they were trying to kill him, didn't he? And, and again, I'm talking to some very powerful people in this room. Every mother in this room is incredibly powerful. Every dad in this room is enormously powerful for good or for bad for his kids. Every grandparent, grandma, everybody. Some of you are, have positions of power. You're a nurse, you're a coach, you're a teacher. This is, I mean, let, let's be honest. This is a very affluent group this morning, and this is a very powerful group of people. And so Jesus isn't saying for you to give up your leverage. He's saying for you to use your leverage for the kingdom of God. Jesus re- retained his power. He was God in the flesh, but he leveraged his power to serve and to love and to help. So the kingdom of God is not about power, but it's always about, it's about service, isn't it? I mean, you think about how he took off his outer cloak and put on a towel and took a basin of water and he washed the disciples' feet. He was still their Lord and their master, but, but he was humble. The kingdom of God's not about position. I'm talking to a group of people today who have a lot of positions. Some of you in this room have some very high positions. All of us in this room have some position somewhere with something. But the kingdom of God, is, it, it's not about like positions. The kingdom of God is always about people. You notice how Jesus just, one time he said, who touched me? And Peter's like, dude, are you kidding? There's a hundred thousand people around us right now. What do you mean you touched me? She's going, no, no, somebody touched me. I felt the power go out of me. And the poor lady thought she was in trouble, didn't she? And Jesus said, I've never seen faith like that in all of Israel. And, and the disciples kind of shooed away the kids. And Jesus said, no, 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 let the little kids come to me. That's what the kingdom's all about. You see, the kingdom of God, it's not about power, though you have leverage. It's not about position, though some of you in this room, probably all of us in this room, have some kind of a position. It's always about people. It's always about people. The kingdom of God is not about intimidating people. Jesus isn't out intimidating folks. He's inviting them. And he says to Zacchaeus, who's hiding up in the tree behind all the leaves, trying to be away from everybody, Zacchaeus Let's come down from that tree. And he's up there in the the tree kind of like hiding, pulling the branches over him, you know. He's trying to hope nobody can see him. And Jesus is going, Zach, I'm coming to your house today. I want a New York strip. I want a baked potato. I want some broccoli just because it's healthy green crap. And I want want, want some key lime pie. And, and, And Jesus just invites himself to dinner. 
I'm going to try that sometime. It's cool how that worked, isn't it? He's not trying to intimidate you. His approach is, I gave my life so you could approach my, my dad. The kingdom of God's not about guilt. I don't like speakers and preachers who try to make you feel guilty. I don't think that's how Jesus worked. And you don't hear that from me. You don't get a lot of guilt from me. I just don't think that's appropriate. So I'm not trying to guilt you to read your Bible or guilt you to give more or guilt you to serve more or guilt you to pray more. I I think that's wrong. The, The kingdom of God's not about guilt. The kingdom of God's about grace. It's an invitation. God's grace allows you and me to approach our Heavenly Father. No matter what we've said, no matter what we've done, no matter how far off the wagon we've fallen, how far we've missed the mark. One of the stories in the Bible that disturbs me and I guess intrigues me, I don't know which is, which is greater, probably more disturbed. But they bring the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. Do you, do you remember this story? They, they bring the woman caught in the act of adultery. And you know, kind of from my ninth grade health class, I was taught that it takes two to commit adultery, but for some reason they only, they only bring the one. So that disturbs me right off the bat. So they bring her, and they try to get Jesus, they try to trap Jesus into stoning her. And, and Jesus is basically saying, look, you know, you without sin, you cast the first stone from the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then Jesus said, where are your accusers? And they're not around. He said, well, I don't, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. What an invitation. What an invitation, what an approach to a relationship with your heavenly Father. I I just, I'm so amazed with his approach. What's your approach to life, to love, to people, to work, to friends, to the kingdom of God, to church? What's your approach? Well, here's here's Jesus' approach. Philippians gives us some pretty clear guidelines on this. Philippians chapter 2 says this, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God. In other words, look at that. Who being the very nature of God. He didn't give up his power. He didn't give up his position. Who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't abuse it. He didn't use it to his own advantage. He didn't misleverage his power. Look at the next verse. Rather, here's the contrast, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This past week, um, remember how it was raining on Monday? Everybody remember Monday? Anybody remember Monday? It was raining, okay? Were you in live Monday? It's the last Monday of your life, okay? Remember how it was raining cats and dogs on Monday? Well, a very, very good friend of mine was up on his roof, and he was, um, trying, he was finding a leak. He had a leak. And so he came, got to the, off the, off, going to get off the ladder, or off the roof, on the ladder, takes a step on the very first rung, and the bottom of the ladder kicks out. And my friend falls over backwards, and lands on, on the back. And they call the emergency, and they're taking him off to Helen Ellis. And he actually, he, uh, he broke, didn't crack, he broke two ribs. One rib went through the lung, 
One punctured the lung, and so they're rushing him off to Helen Ellis. And um, Danita's trying to find me. I didn't have my phone with me, and I, you know, of all places, she comes into Starbucks. I know that sh- shocks all of you, <laughs> but I'm in Starbucks because I had internet, and um, sh- she comes in, and I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. I could tell by the look on her face. She's waving me, you know, and the woman still scares me after 30 years of marriage, but this was a frightening look on her face. I knew something wasn't right. And so we get in the car, and we go to Helen Ellis, and um, there's my friend, and he's got oxygen mask on, and he's breathing in pain. He can hardly breathe. And so I, I prayed over him, and I prayed a prayer, and, and he's one of my real dear fishing friends, so we got a lot more fish to catch, so I'm sure my prayer was a little selfish as well along the way, but I'm praying for him to be good and healthy, and, and then he says to me, he said, by the way, and Emily's our youngest, Emily's our 18-year-old, he said, with the oxygen mask on, he said, hey, we've got something for Emily at home, meant to bring it last week, we'll bring it to church whenever we can, just want you to know we have it. I said, Hey, let's not worry about that. You got an oxygen mask on. You're trying to breathe. Here's a guy that just about got killed. And he's breathing in pain. And what's he thinking about? How can I bless somebody else? That's an approach to life. And he and his wife are two of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. But that's been their approach. Do you see the difference? Yesterday, I'm going into Publix. It's my Publix. I think I've bought enough groceries there to own at least half of the Publix at Ridgemore. I'm going into Publix, and a family from our church is coming out. And the mom and the dad have these buckets full of flowers. And they got a little one, probably the boy's probably four or five. They've got a daughter, probably about 11 or 12. She just entered into middle school. And they got all these flowers. And I said, where are you going? They said, we're going to the nursing home. I said, really? They said, yep, we're going to such and such nursing home. We're going to go from room to room and take a flower and put a flower in each one of these rooms. Do you think that's power? Do you think that little boy's going to forget this? Do you think that little girl's going to forget this ever in their life? You see, that's an approach to life. And everybody in the room, you can choose your approach to life. This is what I suggest, Matthew chapter 25. He says this, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty, give you something to eat? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick in prison and visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If you're not a Christian, I would approach God through Jesus Christ immediately. I would give my life to Christ. And for those of us in the room that we are believers, may we continue to approach him now while we can. And if we do that, he promises to bless you and exalt you. Look at what Philippians says. Philippians chapter 2, he finishes it. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what? Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Acknowledge him now while you can. Because there's coming a day when you can't. Wouldn't that be a great vision for your life to acknowledge God today? Well, one approach was all these people coming from the West. The other approach was Jesus on a donkey coming in from the East. How will you approach life? How will you approach God? How will you approach money, friends, marriage, kids? How, how will you approach all these different things? Well, Jesus came in on a donkey, but he's coming the second time on a white horse. Jesus came in with just a couple of, you know, fishermen and tax collectors, but he's coming back with an army. Listen to what Revelation 19 says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He wore a crown, right? But now he'll come back with a crown, a lot of crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, he's not just by himself, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How about a vision? A vision to approach God and to serve God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Let's stand and let's sing that old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, together.